The following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast by thepilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa. Welcome to a special feature of the Stuck Mike Avcast. My name is Carl Valeri. And I'll be your host today as I share with you some interviews and lectures from the Long Island Air and Space Hall of Fame induction ceremony. This is a special event hosted by Curtis Wright Corporation and the Cradle of Aviation Museum. The Cradle of Aviation Museum is Long Island's Air and Space Museum. The museum has something for all ages, including outstanding exhibits, activities for children, a collection of historic airplanes, a lunar excursion module, and a giant screen dome theater. All those interested in aviation or space will surely enjoy this significant museum. The Cradle of Aviation Museum is host of the annual Long Island Air and Space Hall of Fame induction ceremony. I was fortunate to attend this wonderful event and am happy to share some of the interesting interviews and highlights from the ceremony. The 2012 inductees to the Long Island Air and Space Hall of Fame include Harriet Quimby, the first licensed female pilot and first woman to fly across the English Channel. William Shepard, Space Shuttle Mission Specialist, first commander of the International Space Station, and recipient of the Congressional Space Medal of Honor. Jimmy Doolittle, a flight instructor and test pilot whose most significant contribution to aviation was the world's first flight by reference to instruments at Mitchell Field in 1929. His most famous feat was when he led the attack on Tokyo in 1942, for which he won the Congressional Medal of Honor. The following audio includes interviews with Jim Hughes, an enthusiastic docent, shares his knowledge of museum and of Harriet Quimby, an interview with Jinkata Bradley Kuntz, author of the Harriet Quimby Scrapbook. Jinkata accepted the Hall of Fame award on Harriet Quimby's behalf. And at the end, you'll hear lecture highlights from Jimmy Doolittle, American Hero, Aviation Pioneer, presented by Jimmy Doolittle's granddaughter, Jonna Doolittle Hops. Jonna accepted the Hall of Fame award on behalf of her grandfather. You can listen to the entire lecture at expertaviator.com. Enjoy the show. Well, folks, this is Carl Valeri with the Stuck Mike Avcast here at the Cradle of Aviation Museum on Long Island in Garden City. This is a, a wonderful museum. If you get a chance, come out, out here where you'll have uh, some of the links in the show notes. Today uh, we're here for the uh, Aviation Hall of Fame and also uh, Space Hall of Fame induction for Long Island. This is their fourth year doing this. And I'm speaking with someone who's a, a docent. And uh, how are you doing today? Just a quick introduction. Uh, I'm Jim Hughes, and I'm glad to be here today. Um, I was asked to say a few words about Harriet Quimby. Uh, I never knew anything about Harriet Quimby until I came to the museum. And then I started to get a virile interest because she was an interesting lady. She came from um, Michigan and from a very poor family. 
And um, so they moved out to California trying to make their way. But she was a, a very industrious person. Uh, she was a very good writer. So she was able to write uh, plays uh, for the movies. Uh, she wrote, I think it was three of them, for G.W. Griffith. And she was in, um, uh, I'd say, about ten movies uh, with Seth, Cecil B. DeMille's. She was a very attractive woman, but her real concern was taking care of her parents, so she wanted to make money to take care of them. And she uh, got to New York here, and she started her own magazine, and it was very successful. And uh, while she was here, she got interested in flying, so she came out to the Hempstead Plains here and learned to fly. And no sooner she got to do flying, she liked to take this challenge, so she went over to uh, England to fly across the English Channel. And she was the first lady to fly over the English Channel. And one of the things that I never knew about, but I had heard that uh, the Admiralty in England was very concerned that a woman could fly from England over to France. So this uh, created a big concern to them. So they felt they better pay attention just a little bit. Um, <laughs> the um, uh, Harriet uh, was also the first lady to get an airplane pilot's license, and she had her own car. She was a very, uh, she dressed well, and she, um, uh, as I said, she was a good rider. And when she came back from England after her big triumph, by the way, one of the reasons that she didn't get too much publicity in this is because uh, the day before the Titanic had sunk, and that got all kinds of publicity and kind of pushed. Uh, Harriet's uh, big uh, event of flying over the channel and even today they just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the uh, Titanic and sure enough Harriet was celebrating the 100th anniversary and still the Titanic overshadowed her great achievement. When she came back she went to Boston to um, get an, uh, an air show and she, by the way, she did make a lot of money uh, doing air shows. She was a, a very, an excellent flyer. As a matter of fact, Amelia Earhart looked up to uh, Harry Quimby. It was one of her big idols. And so um, when she got up, uh, the meet director never flew, so he asked Harriet, uh, would she you know, fly him above the uh, Boston Bay? Why she was, why they were up there, the story used to be that the uh, director had leaned over too far, but uh, she actually had a problem with the uh, tail of the plane, which apparently uh, people didn't realize, but the, over in France where the plane was made, they had a lot of trouble with the tail part, and the uh, manufacturer was very upset when uh, Harry Quimby got killed with this uh, accident. Uh, she, she and the director were about 1,500 feet up, and they came down and we lost Harriet at the age of 37. And uh, it was really a, a blow to the uh, women's uh, industry or women's flying uh, group because she really uh, set the tone for future women pilots. And she, uh, uh, one of the things that if you come to the museum, you'll see her dressed in a, a purple outfit, which buttons all the way down. And she had to do this because uh, during the Edwardian period, they had the women wore very fancy, fluffy dresses, and she couldn't wear something like that uh, to do flying. So when she would get done flying, 
she would come down and unbutton the bottom of her dress or uh, her outfit and it became a skirt. So then she conformed with the uh, woman's dress code of the day. But she was uh, very, yeah, she was very uh, dynamic woman and uh, I, uh, um, I got tired of hearing about Amelia Earhart and not, I, not to take anything away from her great achievements. She was a wonderful pilot. But uh, I think that they sometimes forget about Harriet Quimby. So I wrote an article in Newsday, uh, state my concern. A couple of the words I used in there, I guess the editor didn't think it, uh, they weren't out of, uh, how should I say? They, they weren't any kind of nasty words, but they were, it, I guess they just felt it would take away from Amelia's uh, prestige. So. Anyhow, I became a very good fan of uh, Harriet Quimby, and I'm delighted to be here today to take part of this uh, award that you'll receive. Now, she's being inducted into the uh, Aviation Hall of Fame here today, and uh, it seems like you, you really are a big fan, as am I, of, of Harriet Quimby. And a lot of times, uh, certain pioneers do get overshadowed, especially by certain events. Of course, the Titanic being one, the poor, the poor lady. She, uh, but she did some amazing things, and, and uh, we did honor her, actually, at the Women Fly It Forward event this year. Now, this museum, I, I actually, I really love this museum. For you know, full disclosure, I'm actually a member of the Cradle of Aviation Museum, and any time I'm in Long Island, I love to come here. Now, uh, just could you tell us a little bit about this museum? What can people expect to see here? Well, uh, they, um, uh, uh, a lot of the uh, planes are the actual planes that were in the first, second World War in Vietnam and the uh, moon or moon lot, or lodge, or, uh, what do we try to say? The lamb. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, we have the third one that they had made, which they, uh, they could really, if they had to use it, they could. And we have some dynamic docents over there who worked on the project, and they really give uh, people a good rundown of that particular. You know, it's interesting. When you said the, the LAM, the Lunar Excursion Module there, yeah. a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't. If you look at that exhibit, you think it's a model. That, that's a real one, isn't it? That's correct. <laughs> so, and the way that the museum is laid out, it's not overbearing. Uh, even children enjoy themselves. If you just, they set the pattern up that uh, as you go through each pavilion, it has uh, the color of the carpet changes and you're going into a, uh, a different period. You start off with the uh, wings, um, uh, um, uh, yeah, dream of wings. And then you get into, uh, to Hempstead Plains, where you have Calvert Perry Rogers, who was the first uh, man to uh, fly from the East Coast to the West Coast. Uh, he was offered uh, $50,000 if he could fly uh, fly it in 39 or 30 days, but I guess uh, they knew it was a sure thing he wouldn't make it. But anyhow, uh, the company that sponsored him, Vin Fizz, they uh, made a lot of money uh, with him. Uh, flying across the country. Uh, in 30 days he got to Kansas City and he couldn't go any further. And um, But Finn Fizz offered him money to continue his flight so he got out to California in 49 days which was quite a feat for uh, 1911 to, to get out to California. And he couldn't get across the Rockies, the type of plane he had. And by the way the plane was made by the uh, Wright brothers. 
And then you follow the museum around, you go to the First World War, and then the golden age of uh, flight uh, where um, you had uh, Glenn Curtis became a great manufacturer of planes. And of course, you get into the uh, Second World War and where Grumman played a very vital role. I think that there was like roughly about 45,000 planes that were made here in Long Island for the war effort. And then you, uh, and you just, uh, you can go up to the top and look down on the, the various uh, exhibits. And as I say, it's, uh, I don't think it's boring to either children or adults. It's something that really captivates your interest. And um, I, I think that if you've never been here before, you should give it a shot. It's worthwhile. You know, I've, I think that this museum here, I like to tell people, it's like the Smithsonian of Long Island, the Smithsonian Aviation Museum. It's such a terrific uh, museum here. Now, the, uh, the price is, is great. I mean, it's not that expensive to get in. There's so many different things they can do. You even have an IMAX theater here and ju just some really fun things to do for everybody, not just for folks like me who are really interested in aviation. There's stuff here for the kids to do, too. Yes, and I uh, think that uh, once you, you come here, we often get people make repeats coming back, and uh, they uh, and one of the things the museum has done now is they got into training children in the science field, and it seems to be doing very well. And uh, I think this is going to help to give publicity because the uh, as the kids get older, new families will find out more about it, and a lot of the school districts here are taking advantage of the uh, courses that they're uh, using here at the museum and they're always uh, looking ahead to try to come up with different things they just don't stop with what they have they're constantly trying to improvise and make new things to make uh, things more interesting for the people uh, out here in Long Island and as well as uh, other people from outside of Long Island and it's amazing the number of people in Long Island are not aware of this museum. So hopefully uh, there'll be a lot of interest and a lot of publicity stirred up as the years go by. Oh, I think there will be. I, I've traveled over a thousand miles to get here today. I came here from Florida just to come to this event. And this is, uh, it's, it is becoming more and more renowned. A lot of people don't realize the key role that Long Island had in our aviation history. But with this museum, they've done that. They've enabled people to learn that. Now, getting back to our event today, we talked about Harry Quimby, but I think there's, there's two other inductees uh, into the Hall of Fame, the Air and Space Hall of Fame. Do you know who those two f other folks are? It's, uh, I think it was William Shepard, right? And then and, and Jimmy Doolittle. And Jimmy Lee Doolittle's granddaughter is going to be here to speak. Uh, actually, as a matter of fact, another part of this museum that's really terrific and something I'm going to take part of uh, tonight is uh, they have this lecture series, and they have some really terrific people. And Jimmy Doolittle's, Doolittle's uh, granddaughter is actually going to speak about her life uh, with Jimmy Doolittle and, and uh, a little bit about the man. To me, one of the most amazing people uh, in aviation is Jimmy Doolittle. They talk about the Doolittle Raiders, uh, but... I think the most important thing he did in, in my world is the fact that he's the first one to actually take flight uh, without looking outside the airplane. And, and they talk a little bit about that here in the museum. And uh, Instrument flight? Yeah. 
You got it. And we couldn't do that. Actually, you know, I'm a captain with the airlines, and, and one thing we could never do, we could never transport people throughout the country without being able to fly through the clouds, and he did that. that that's just terrific. Is there any other, like, key uh, features in this museum maybe we, we left out or that we could talk a little bit about? I know they have a great uh, museum store and a terrific book about the Long Island aviation history, which was actually written by the curator of this museum here. And the, uh, and that, let me ask you also, you've been a docent here. Uh, for how many years have you been doing that? This is my third year. Third year. You have an incredible knowledge about the aviation. Now, how did, is this something that just uh, you got interested with or, or just uh, from? As a kid, I, um, I followed a lot of movies from the Second World War. And uh, what you, when you first come with the, uh, in the museum as a docent, you have to pick a, make a statement of something that they put on your tag. And so I selected God as my co-pilot. So some people probably think I'm an evangelist or something. But uh, that was a movie in 1945. Dennis Morgan was in it. And it always captivated me for some reason. And I, uh, I used to be afraid uh, of flying until I got into the service. And, um, but I always had an interest. It was amazed me, the instruments and how they design planes. And it's, it's amazing how high up they can go and what the things that the planes can do. Well, it's always amazed me, too, since I was young, and I obviously got into it for the rest of my life. Looks like they're going to get ready pretty soon to start, and they're seating people here. Uh, I really, you know, it's been a blessing to be able to, to, to find you here today. It, you've been a really wealth of knowledge, and, and I appreciate you speaking to us and also our listeners here at the Stuck Mike Avcast, and hopefully we'll keep in touch and, and maybe have you on the show again. Uh, thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. Today there was a special inductee who couldn't represent herself nor her family, and uh, her name was Harriet Quimby. And I have somebody special who knows a few things about Harriet, and uh, like uh, you folks to listen to Gia talk about uh, Harriet and her special relationship. Uh, welcome to the show, and, and uh, thanks for coming. I think you did a great job uh, receiving the, uh, the award today. Thank you very, very much, Carl. It's a pleasure for me to be speaking with you here. The event is great. The venue is beautiful. And it, I was just very pleased to represent Harriet Quimby for this. Now, why is it that uh, you are representing Harriet Quimby today? I'm her biographer. I wrote her a full-length biography about her. But uh, that, that was the culmination of several years of, of independent research. I, went, I tried to follow in her footsteps. She was a photojournalist. She traveled, and this is between 1903 and 1912. And she was in Israel, and she was in Mexico, and she was all over the United States. And it, it was really quite, a, it, it was all I could do to keep up with that woman. But I did, I did uh, track down details that nobody had ever known about her before. And the more I found out about her, the more I liked her. And then I just couldn't let go. Wow, that's an interesting story. So you, you went out there and you started researching, and, and you became part of, of her life, basically, and learning so much about her. I did, and it's really interesting. As, as contemporary, she was really ahead of her own time in 1906, 7, 8, 9, 10. She drove a car. She encouraged women to fix their own automobiles. She, uh, so it's not surprising she took up flying, but she was a, she a professional journalist. She worked in, in Manhattan. And um, she was very much like a working woman today. Um, she was single. She had a roommate now and then, but she was basically on her own. So now, why was she inducted into the Hall of Fame here in Long Island? Why, why here? Because 
when she lived in New York as a journalist, she drove out to uh, the island and took lessons at the Moisson School of Aviation in 1911. And she took her pilot's license, her test here, which is then called an aviator's uh, license here, right here at Mineola. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, she stayed, I believe, the night before she took her test. I think she stayed right here at the Garden City Hotel overnight. And um, in any case, that's why she was really a New York girl and a Long Island flyer. She flew here practicing, and she started her exhibition flying here. She actually got interested in flying because she saw the flyers at the Belmont Air Meet in 1910. So she's very, very connected to Long Island. 1910, that was a while ago. <laughs> now, she, she seems to be inspirational to you. She must have been inspirational to others. Were there any other aviators that she inspired to, say, take up flying that you know of or any other females? That's a really good question and well-worded. Yes, yes. Um, in fact, I did take lessons myself, flying lessons. And, you know, there's a point uh, every uh, student pilot decides whether or not they're going to solo. And I said, no, I don't think I'm going to be a pilot. I'm a very good right seat, a person who can navigate. And I really love small aircraft. Um, Harriet, because in her time, um, it was aviation was still so new. What I always try and impart to people is um, she was not discriminated against because she was a woman. This is a fable. This is a myth that a lot of historians, unfortunately, have, have published over and over. When, if you had the money and if you, to take lessons or to buy an aircraft, it didn't matter if you were male or female. In 1910, 11, and 12, women made far less money than men. And so it was rare for a woman to be able to afford it. But she was a professional journalist, and she could afford it. Plus, she was also very good at getting people to sponsor her. So... When she started, she used her journalism columns to report every minute of her lessons and how she learned to fly, how she made her own costume to fly, and that inspired lots of women. She got letters. For, well, first of all, men wrote her letters asking to, if she would marry them because she was so beautiful. <laughs> but uh, women said, how do I learn to fly? So that was in her own time. She, she did that. But after her death, which was tragic in 1912, she, had, she fell out of an aircraft that she was flying in Boston. After that, even as, as time went on into, after World War I, that's when Amelia Earhart and that generation of flyers started to fly. And even in Amelia's book, uh, her own one of her own books. She credits Harriet with being a great inspiration. I think she she for for some reason the twenties were so remarkable with Earhart, Poncho Barnes, and and that that whole flapper era that they were wild enough in themselves that Harriet was I think in that next generation pretty much let go, and it didn't. I don't think she really became. Um, even uh, an icon or emblematic, or even known as the first licensed female pilot, until like the 50s, 60s, 70s, and nothing was really written about her until the 90s. Wow, that's almost 50 years after her, her passing. That's incredible. But that happens a lot. A lot of people don't get credit until many years later. We don't find out these things. And it's great that someone like yourself has been able to you know, put this down on paper and, and make it available to everybody. Now, uh, let's... Uh, talk a little bit about that. How can they find out about what it is you've done, the writing you've done, and, and where can they find that, say a book or whatever articles you've written? I um, have a website, 
and it's www.harrietquimby.org, as you would imagine. And it, if you go there, you'll see all kinds of ways you can reach me by email and that sort of thing. Um, there have been projects this past, this year, 2012. You just just last month, I was back here in Long Island. We were celebrating the centennial of her cross-channel flight, which was April 16, 1912. And uh, of course, the centennial of her death will be in July. But um, you can look at my website and pretty much keep up with me and 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 the book. You can even find where to buy the I, her her book is called the Harriet Quimby Scrapbook. It's the Harriet Quimby scrapbook. That's what the name is. Oh, great. So if people want to see it, harrietquimby.org, and we'll have that link in the show notes, of course. Now, this museum here in Long Island, the Cradle of Aviation, is there anything here that they can find about Harriet Quimby? Oh, my. Yes, I'm thrilled to tell you that when Joshua Stoff, the curator, and by the way, the, the driving force behind this whole museum, I, it's just Josh all over. I've known him since 95 when I was doing research on Quimby. And before this wonderful atrium was built, before this was built, and um, uh, we knew right away that we were going to have a, a Hempstead Plains exhibit, and you'll see the Vinfiz and some others, the Curtis, but he also had this Moisson Blario and a mannequin. And so between Josh and I, we dressed the mannequin, and she's actually, if you come to the museum, you'll see this beautiful mannequin of Harriet next to her plane. And um, if you look closely, you'll see her scarf and her shoes uh, right out of my dresser drawer <laughs> and I made and uh, she loved incredibly exotic jewelry so I lived next to the border at the time lived near uh, Mexico so I went down to Mexico and I bought a necklace and and fixed it for her and if you come to the museum you'll learn a lot more than just about Harry Quimby but she's my favorite of course and I and when Josh always gives me a dusting uh, a feather duster when I come I'm allowed to go in the exhibit and dust off her clothes in the airplane Terrific. Is there anything else about uh, Harriet that uh, people might want to know that's something they wouldn't be able to read or see or yeah. on the, other than the aviation and possibly her acting career? Uh, oh, her acting. Well, that was really interesting. Yeah, her best friend was Linda Arvidsson Griffith, the famous director, D.W. Griffith's wife. Um, what, I, what I like to impart to uh, those who, who, who get history through the classroom, I think there's a a, a fable or a myth that's been generated that women did not work um, at you know during the 1910, 1920s, 30s, 40s, and it, that they were basically mothers and wives. I have gone through hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of newspapers looking for stories about Harriet, and what I find in the sidebars and what I find in little articles everywhere is Mrs. Jones. Uh, with, you know, has an egg root, or Mrs. Smith has, uh, she takes in children and babysit, or they work in a factory. They didn't get ink for it, but these women were working, and I always ask my audiences, how many people in the audience today can get by with one person working in the family, and how many of you have both of you, at, you know, working, husband and wife? And believe me, it wasn't any different. It's never been any different. People always got by when they could with two incomes even though women didn't own up to it they they did these things and that's what Harriet knew she was not a suffragette but she knew that women had a place in the workforce and I would say her legacy was not only in aviation but she was a really good journalist and she just gave women the confidence they could just about do anything
And that's something we need more. We need to see more women in aviation and other fields, but especially in aviation because there's not many percentage-wise yet, but it's growing. And I think that by your telling this story and others about these women that have been real pioneers, uh, I think it's going to inspire lots of folks to go into flying. I sure do appreciate your talking to us today. It's been terrific. And for anybody that's interested on Long Island here at the Cradle of Aviation Museum, there's a terrific exhibit here about Harry Quimby. I was actually able to go take a look at it. And uh, it, it, it is interesting to see the, the different outfits, that, or the outfit, I should say, that she's known for. It's, it's quite colorful. So go out there. Also, HarrietQuimby.org, your site, would definitely would like to invite those people to go out there and see that. And I uh, do appreciate it so much. Thanks so much for talking to us here. My pleasure. Jim Hughes and Gia Bradley-Kuntz are very passionate about aviation and aviation history. Another person who is very passionate about aviation and has a direct tie to one of the inductees is Jonna Doolittle-Hops. The following is lecture highlights from Jimmy Doolittle, American hero, aviation pioneer. Presented by Jimmy Doolittle's granddaughter, Jonna Doolittle-Hops. Jonna accepted the Hall of Fame award on behalf of her grandfather. I think you'll find her lecture very informative and also inspirational. In the year 2000, the historian and author C.D. Glines passed me a copy of the original script to Disney's movie Pearl Harbor. Now, in that original script, the character of, of Jimmy Doolittle was portrayed as a not very bright, foul-mouthed, patent stereotype. And I'm going to start with a disclaimer right off the bat, because we got a hold of Disney, and they were very gracious to help us modify that portrayal, and they didn't have to be. You see, I learned a couple things in dealing with, with Disney during that time period. The first is, once someone is gone, they become a part of public domain, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to protect them. Disney could have portrayed him any way they wanted. The second thing we learned, which was a little bit more disturbing, was the fact that the kids today, who are writing books and movies and, and screenplays and everything, don't have a clue. Not just about Doolittle, but about World War II. So I decided to write a book to um, straighten out the image of, of who Doolittle was. So who is Doolittle and why do I care about protecting his image? My grandfather was born in 1864 or 1896 in Alameda, California. Shortly after he was born, his father took off for Nome, Alaska. And in 1900, my great-grandmother moved up to Nome. Now, this is a picture of my grandfather when he was a little girl. <laughs> you see, he was a little bitty fellow. And with those ringlets and everything, well, he became the target of bullies up there. And it didn't take him very long to learn how to fight with his fist. In fact, he became so good at street fighting that in order to join that group of boys in Nome, you had to fight Doolittle. And you didn't, you didn't win or very seldom did you win. Another thing that happened during those years in Nome that helped to form who he was were those long, long, dark winter days. Granddad used to play in the gymnasium, and he did a lot of tumbling, you know, acrobatics, that kind of stuff. That helped form who he was. But one of the things that really impacted who he was, any school teachers in here? Anybody teach school? Okay. We school teachers have an imaginary line that we draw, right? and we don't expect the kids to step over it. But every now and then, there's somebody that plants both toes directly on that line. They crack you up, but you can't let the other kids know that, right? Well, Jimmy was that kid. He was a little bit of a character. 
And one day he drew a picture of the, the principal and it wasn't a very flattering picture and he got caught. His punishment was that he had to write on the blackboard 25 times, Jimmy Doolittle is the smallest boy in school. Now, he told me the story, so I, I know it directly from him. He told me that he didn't know if it was the first time he had to write that sentence or if it was the 25th time. He was never going to let his stature stop him from doing the things that he wanted to do in his life. Well, they stayed up in Nome until about 1908. And by then, my great-grandmother had, had had pretty much enough of the rustic life. And she felt Jimmy wasn't getting the kind of education he needed. So they moved back down to Los Angeles, California. Now, my grandfather in high school went to Manual Arts High School, and those things that he did in Nome followed him. He did the tumbling. He was on a member of the gymnastic team and the, and the pyramid team, team. He did a little street fighting. In fact, he got caught one day. One of his English teachers saw him in a street fight, pulled him aside and said, you know, Jimmy, if you keep, a, keep your head about you, you'd be really good. So his English teacher taught him how to box. And in high school, he boxed under the name of Jimmy Pierce. He became so good at boxing, he actually box professionally, and he couldn't win money in those days, so he would win this gold watch, and then he'd sell it back for $35, and then he'd win it back in the next fight, and that's how he made his spending money. But also, well, he was a C student, you know, the same toe-on-the-line thing, but there was a young lady that he met in high school. Her name was Josephine Elsie Daniels. Now, Josephine was a straight-A student. She was a Meridian. Uh, she had a photographic memory. Her family had come from Louisiana by way of Decatur, Illinois, and her parents had planned for her to marry well. And they were not particularly happy when the Doolittle kids showed up on their doorstep. In fact, when my grandfather proposed to my grandmother in high school, she looked at him and she said, Jimmy, my mother would never approve. Well, he wasn't going to marry her mother, so that wasn't a problem for him. But her family was so adamant against the marriage that her uncle offered to send her to law school and then let her pra uh, practice law in his firm. Well, Jimmy didn't want to marry a lawyer, but Joe didn't want to marry a professional boxer. So they made a bargain in high school. Joe would give up law if Jimmy would give up boxing. And although he boxed in college, he never again boxed professionally. Well. Jimmy went, after, after he graduated from college, or high school in 1914, he headed up to Nome and to Seward, Alaska, where his plan was to pick up enough gold off the beaches and come back and marry Joe. Well, by 1914, there wasn't a lot of gold laying around. So he spent the summer building a couple of houses with his father, who was a carpenter by trade. He spent a lot of time panning for gold, and he spent a lot of time eating salmon which he wasn't very fond of after that summer. But what he did was he decided that in order to build things and to travel, he needed to get an education. So he came back down to Los Angeles on a steamer and enrolled in junior college, Los Angeles Junior College. He spent two years in Los Angeles, and then he transferred up to UC Berkeley, where he studied mining engineering, 1917. The United States became involved in World War I. My grandfather had just finished his junior year of college. He dropped out of school, 
and he enlisted in the Army Signal Corps as a flying cadet. He stayed up in Berkeley long enough to, to um, get his ground school, and then he headed down to Rockwell Field in San Diego for his flight school. On his way down, he stopped in Los Angeles, and he and my grandmother eloped. They literally eloped. Her father forbid her to marry him, said he would never become, no, um, never amount to anything. And so on Christmas Eve, 1917, my grandparents went to the, the courthouse and they were married by a city clerk. My grandfather was sent down to Rockwell Field. He completed his flight training and was gung-ho to go over to, to Europe and fight. But they kept him at Rockwell. Much to his disappointment, he became a flight instructor. Now, I think that had a lot to do with the kind of pilot he became because he spent more hours in an airplane than anybody else. They decided to send him to engineering school. Now, back in this time, you know, engineers and pilots were totally different people, and, and Granddad was the first person to start marrying them together. You know, engineers back then were very straight-laced fellows, and pilots, well, even today, pilots are crazy. So he, as a, as a pilot, knew what he wanted an airplane to do. As an engineer, he was learning how to make that happen. Based on those two years of schooling, the University of California, Berkeley, gave him his uh, Bachelor of Science degree, and then the Air Force, or the Army Air Corps, did what we still do today. We have a program at the Air Force today called AFIT. They sent him to MIT. They gave him two years to earn his master's. In the first year, he earned his master's of science in aeronautical engineering, and in the second year, he earned his doctorate. He was the first person to ever earn a Bachelor of Science in Aeronautical Engineering from MIT. Now my grandmother, she wasn't very busy during those days because she just had an infant and a toddler, and that doesn't keep us busy, right? She chased the boys around all day, and when my grandfather would get home from school after the boys were in bed, she would type up all of his notes, and then she would quiz him. And based on all the typing she did, the notes and the doctorate and, and the masters, that became, became MIT's first textbook. So Granddad used to say she earned it as much as he did. December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. A week later, Roosevelt called his chiefs of staff together and he issued a request. He said, bomb, German, or bomb Japan. Just barely four months later, my grandfather led something that's called the Doolittle Raid. Now, th this is the one instant that he is, is the best known for, but there are a lot of myths that surround this particular raid. The first is that it was his idea. I hate to admit this. It was the Navy. Yeah, the Navy came up with it. You see this fellow, this Captain Lowe, who was a submariner, was flying over a training field, and there was the outline of an aircraft carrier, and they were training uh, Navy pilots. And as his shadow of the airplane passed over that aircraft carrier, he wondered if, if an Army land-based bomber couldn't take off from an Air Force carrier. And so he elevated it up to the chain of command. It got up to Admiral King. Admiral King called Hap Arnold. General Arnold called in my grandfather, not because he was a hot dog pilot, but because he was a scientist. He asked him what plane could take off. 
Granddad came up with the B-25, exact same plane the Navy suggested. So it wasn't, it wasn't his idea. The second thing, it was not a suicide mission. The original plan for that mission was to take off from the aircraft carrier, to hit targets in Japan, to land in China, and to turn those airplanes over for, for uh, protection in the Pacific. What happened that changed the dynamics of that, that raid was the fact that they were spotted 250 miles further off the coast of Japan than they had planned. Um, every single man on that mission had a possible replacement. You see, they trained 24 crews, but only 16 airplanes could make it onto the deck. So any one of those boys could have stepped down. Not a single one did. The raid itself, the damage was minimal as far as, as physical. What it did was, the first thing that it did was it, it gave a tremendous boost to the Americans. You see, at that point in time, the Pacific had become a Japanese lake. We'd had defeat after defeat. This was our first success. The second thing it did was it, it was a demoralizing effect on the Japanese people. You see, the emperor had told them they could never be, be touched. Um, he lost face. The Americans had actually bombed, bombed their homeland. The third thing it did, and probably one of the most important, it changed the strategy of the defense of, of Japan. They pulled troops back, they pulled planes back, they jumped the gun at midway. So it really helped to turn, turn the war around in the Pacific. I'm gonna end this, I don't have my paper with me, but I'm gonna end this by paraf paraphrasing a quote of my grandfather. He said that we were all put on this earth for a purpose. And that purpose was to make it within our capabilities a better place in which to live. We could do it by painting a picture, writing a poem, building a bridge, combating uh, injustice or prejudice in a thousand other ways. But the purpose was to leave this earth a better place than when we found it. I look around this room. I look at people who are making this world a better place. And I think about the stories that you all have to tell. I told you there's a reason I do this and something I want. I want you, and I'm not just talking to you boys, I'm talking to you girls too. I want you to make sure that your history is recorded. It doesn't matter if you do it in a letter to your grandchildren. It doesn't matter if you go to the Library of Congress and and do a veterans history project, which by the way, your grandchildren can film for you. You don't have to go anyplace to do it. It doesn't matter how you do it, but every one of those threads is what makes this country the country that it is. And if those stories aren't recorded, they're lost forever. And if they're lost forever, we can't blame Hollywood for not getting it right. Thank you. been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast brought to you by thepilotreport.com, a Len Costa production.